As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Muddy Knees Media. The heating's on, it's getting darker earlier and earlier, so why not cheer yourself up this November with a subscription to The Athletic for just £1 a week. For only 100 of your English pence every seven days, you'll get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts. Sign up today at theathletic.com totally. Totally Football Show. Today, no Leuven for Southgate in England in Belgium. Scotland still celebrating. Ireland's not Irie. PPV is OUT. And record breaker Ramos misses pens like a technophobe in Silicon Valley. This is the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yes, hello, listen, here we are at the start of another week. Matt Davis-Adams here. Fear not, though, this is my last ride in the big chair for a while. Jimbo will return on Thursday. We're convening late on Sunday night post-England's defeat against Belgium in the Nations League. Daniel Storey was keeping an eye on that game for the publication originally launched as a sister paper for The Independent. Hi, Daniel. Hello, Matt. That's a very convoluted way of saying the eye. I like it. Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> I've got one more go in this chair. I'm going to be as convoluted as I possibly can. Uh, Adam Hurry, a.k.a. Football Clichés of The Athletic, and it's aptly named Football Clichés Podcast, also with us. Hi, Adam. Hello, Matt. How are you? Really good, thank you. Really good. Uh, not forgetting my old dance partner from the Parts Unknown days. That's perhaps what he's best known for, but he also writes about Manchester United and other football-related stuff for The Athletic. It's Carl Anker. Ahoy, hoy. Ahoy, hoy to you. Now, international football has been the focus for the past week and on Sunday, word reached us that a man synonymous not only with Liverpool but also with England had passed away. Ray Clements died at the age of 72 following a long fight with prostate cancer. He won 61 caps for England over the course of an 11-year international career. He also spent 11 years as England's goalkeeper coach. As a player for Scunthorpe, Liverpool and Tottenham, he won pretty much everything there was to win. Three European Cups, five league titles, three UEFA Cups, two FA Cups, the Super Cup, the League Cup and numerous charity shields. I had such a magnificent team in front of me then I didn't have many saves to make. But I hope that when I did have things to do, I did it for the good of the team and uh, 
for the good of the supporters as well. So, uh, yeah, simple and effective, I think, is probably the best way I talk about myself. The late Ray Clements, for whom tributes have been pouring in from across the world of football. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So, on Sunday night, Belgium beat England by two goals to nil, meaning Gareth Southgate's side are out of the Nations League. They can no longer qualify for the finals. Belgium not quite there yet themselves. Yuri Tielemans put them 1-0 ahead 10 minutes in. And then Dries Mertens doubled the lead midway through the second half. Daniel, you've just finished filing your piece. What what was the headline? What was your main takeaway from the game? I, I actually didn't think it was it was too bad. When I saw the, the side the team was announced in the probable shape. I really worried about the system. I worried about us creating any chances. We actually did create quite a few chances. Uh, We were just really inexact in the final third. Grealish was excellent again, England's best player. Um, The problem comes if you're going to use this kind of back three with wing-backs who aren't particularly attacking and then two defensive central midfielders is the only good thing about that is if you stop conceding goals and you you win games 1-0 or 2-0 yourselves you can't play with that side and then go 2-0 down the first 25 minutes or it becomes completely defunct, which, um, yeah, they have to sort that out because they were missing players. They were missing a huge number of players tonight. I think Sterling and Rashford would both have started if if fit and the number of casualties is becoming a little bit worrying. But, yeah, the, the accusations against Southgate are that he's becoming a little bit perfunctory and a bit almost kind of succumbing to the fear. Like... I get it, but I didn't really think that tonight was necessarily huge evidence of that. But I understand that that's, that's the way that public opinion seems to be going. Yeah, Adam, Jack Grealish was one of the big talking points in the build-up to the game. And he got his he got his start here. But did Southgate maybe need to show a little bit more flexibility in terms of the people he's choosing and maybe not trusting the, the same old names who served him well, albeit a couple of years ago? Well, it's, it's, it's very odd to see a player like Grealish in an England team because... It, it's been so long, probably longer than I can remember, that we've had a player who you can truly class as as a maverick who will do his own thing. Uh, I, I can't think of a player. I mean, even even Gaza had a kind of um, industry about him. Um, you know, he would go box to box. So it's really strange to see a player like Grealish around. And this this growing consensus that we have to build our team around Jack Grealish is a troubling one for for English football because it's just not something we've ever done. And um, this Belgium game was it was another. One for the England against big big teams chestnut, which is becoming quite an enduring thing. But um, I mean, as deflating as watching England can often be, it's quite comforting in a way to uh, because it, it's it's a modern specialism of England to be losing approximately two 0 to decent teams about every twelve months or so. It's just something that happened uh, forever in my lifetime. So uh, in that sense, I'm really reassured. <laughs> um, Carl, it feels to me like the 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 tide of, of love for Gareth Southgate is, is beginning to turn a little bit. Is he, the, is he the best man to be coaching this England team at the moment? I think so, yes. I think so. I think based on what he's done in the job, he, I think, is a little bit of a victim of his own success. If anything, Gareth Southgate's become a victim of mission creep. So if you consider the general, I will say apathy, that England had going into that World Cup in 2018 and how there was such a groundwell of support and how, it, you know, if it was semi-ironic, it's coming home and then it became non-ironic and fans thought England could legitimately win the World Cup. And I think that has largely, you know, that 
goodwill has ebbed away a little bit. And England have progressed, most definitely. They're, they're a far better unit than they've been since 2016, 2017, and, and indeed 2018. I think this England, England team is probably one of the better England teams we've seen in about a generation. Um, the worry is a lot of other national teams are getting better. So France are all still going to be very, very good. Belgium have probably got better. Germany seem to be retooling quite well. Spain look close to getting their act together. The Netherlands also seem to be getting their act together. The only real traditional European superpower that hasn't really improved since the last World Cup cycle is Italy. And it vaguely gives me the thought of Tottenham Hotspur in 2017, where... Spurs, you know, they had finished second at the end of 2017-16 of coming behind the Chelsea team that was just better. Um, and they would go on to be better under Pochettino, but you, you couldn't shake that very annoying feeling that they had missed their championship window. Their chance to win the big one had gone already. Uh, and I think that's I think that's the growing concern with English national team right now. And probably the growing concern for, for club managers, Daniel. Ben Chilwell off in the first half in, in this game. Joe Gomez, serious injury suffered in training last week. And now they've got to play Iceland in, in what is effectively a dead rubber. You can only imagine what Jose Mourinho is thinking. Yeah, I, I, I dearly love international football, but um, it does it does test you at times. And those times are agreeing to a trio of international games, one of which is a friendly in in a relentless scheduling in which players are going to get muscle injuries. Uh, and I actually think it, it, because of how tribal football supporting has become in terms of club football, I actually think it, it does, you know, it, it plays against Southgate. I, th- I think he suffers for it because if Raheem Sterling's now picked up an injury or Marcus Rashford's picked up an injury and Ben Chilwell has tonight, those fans will see that as a blame on you know, I hate international football because our players get injured in a way that they annoyed people before, but it didn't really transpose itself onto the manager, which I think it does now. I think people go, oh, Gareth's overplaying, overplaying our players. Never mind that, you know, never mind that Trent Alexander-Arnold picked up an injury after playing five or six games in 23 days under Klopp. That's not the point. He has a right to pick those players in a, in a weird way that apparently Southgate doesn't. So I, I think it's really unhelpful for him. I think if you if you spoke to Southgate honestly and he could be honest, he would have said, I really don't want international friendlies at the moment. I'd rather just play the Nations League games because I think they're completely counterproductive. Plenty of Premier League players in the in the Belgium lineup, Adam. We ought to we ought to mention them. The fact that they won the game. He he took a lot of stick. He was he was ridiculed by some people during his time in this country, but but maybe Andy Gray was onto something when he when he tipped uh, <laughs> Roberto Martinez. Yeah, we're slowly all becoming um, Roberto Martinez apologists or even converts. I don't know. Um, I don't know. He's he's an, he's an intriguing man to watch on the touchline. He's, he's such an odd. Just his body language is so odd for a manager, which which I realise is is very low on the list of priorities to be judging a manager. But that's all I have. Um, but yeah, he keeps Belgium ticking along as a as a collective force of sorts. But um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I still don't buy them as a as a world leading team. Certainly not FIFA's number one ranked team. It's just um, yeah, it, it didn't feel like a, um, a humbling for England. Mm, mm. I, I'll still near freely ridicule Roberto Martinez as an international manager I still think he has a unusual style of leading that Belgium team Thorgan Hazard as a wing back was just like okay fine okay you're going to do it your way I think Roberto Martinez is a very enjoyable person in football and anyone who's worked in and around him 
can testify he's just a pleasant man to be around he always has a very positive way of going about his business uh, and I, I once had a conversation with him and i think he described his wife as someone who had very high quality conversational value <laughs> that sentence is that, is that good banter <laughs> no no that was just uh, uh, and yes you know he's not speaking in in his his native tongue so i'm, I'm gonna apply some caveats that, and it's that weird thing of at every point of uh, international football or indeed football where you reach some point in the layer cake and it just descends into sort of Brentisms. I think one thing that should be brought up about Belgium and Roberto Martinez in this game is that he didn't make any substitutes until about the 70th minute, which, you know, we can talk about Southgate running players into the ground. There's still a lot of Premier League players in that Belgium national team and Martinez seemed very content to put his nation league wants above uh, the needs of club managers around Europe. Brief tactical point maybe on on England. I I think it's Southgate seems like he's now again wedded to this, you know, central defensive back three and wing backs. But it's really odd in that you think of, you know, you think of a normal team with the wing backs means that the the wing backs are two of the most creative players. Like I really don't see Kieran Trippier and Ben Chilwell ever being that in any team. It does seem odd that when you saw Grealish's creativity, I do wonder why you wouldn't just play solid fullbacks, play a 4-3-3, play your two defensive midfielders if you want, and then just say to Jack Grealish, just go and roam where you want, go and overlap where you want, go and cause some problems and some surprise. Because I think if there is a valid criticism of Southgate's England, they have become a bit... You know, the, the 2018 World Cup was brilliant because it was a surprise. We didn't know what to expect. You kind of know what to expect from a, a Southgate England now. All right, so who would you rather have manage in England then, Daniel? Gareth Southgate or Roberto Martinez? Um, I would rather have, have Gareth Southgate because I think if being English is an advantage with a national team, and I think it probably is. You know, they don't have that much time with players. So it is about motivation and stuff. I don't see Roberto Martinez as a huge motivator. <laughs> oh, no, he's, he's he's a very good song person and... Uh... <laughs> I've, I've a Sorry, time. a very good song person. You're going to have to elaborate on that a little Singer? bit. Oh, you are you are paid to um, song to good song person. There you are. Uh, <laughs> you can tell recording is quite light on Sunday. You can be quite motivational in terms of speech giving and in terms of general vibes. We I know we use vibes as a disparaging term when we talk about football managers saying people that talk about vibes aren't very good with X's and O's. But from what I understand, Roberto Martinez is someone who's very good um, in. in making a harmonious dressing room. Right, that's England. We'll look at the other home nations after this. So I'm sitting in the dressing room, got a towel over my head, and I can just hear goal after goal after goal going in. And um, I mean, that's, that's down to me, that. It? Yeah, that was, a, that was a low point, definitely, and big regret. Peter Crouch is pretty good at podcasts, apparently. So he joined Ruby Walsh and Paddy Power himself on the latest from the Horse's Mouth Show to talk about Liverpool's spurs and feeling like a head on a stick. Search Paddy Power on your podcast provider and listen now. Paddy Power. 18plusbegambleaware.org Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Playoffs for the Euros. Thursday night, the final four spots at Euro 2020 in 2021 probably were claimed by Hungary, North Macedonia, Slovakia, and Scotland. And the Tartan Army get to celebrate reaching a major tournament for the first time in 23 years after Steve Clark's side beat Serbia on penalties, even after conceding a last-minute equaliser in Belgrade that took the game to extra time. Um, Adam, what, what was your favourite moment from this? Maybe, maybe David Marshall's delayed celebration slash fevered look at the referee? Yes, absolutely. Um, and this was a very interesting case study for the, uh, this dystopian future that a lot of people have been claiming, which was that VAR is going to ruin football and ruin moments like this. And as it turned out, it hasn't ruined it. It didn't ruin it at all. It ruined it for a maximum of about half a second. And then the hype has taken over. Nobody remembers the def- you know that, that kind of stasis that we had for a couple of seconds while he waited, pleaded in the face of the referee to find out if indeed he hadn't left his line and that the penalty shootout was over. After that, it's just been a, exactly as it would have been other- otherwise. It's just a swell of goodwill and, and excitement and one wonder and hysteria, and it's been brilliant. So VAR hasn't ruined any of that, so it's complete bollocks. So we can put that out the window straight away, can't we? I kind of felt like maybe there was VAR and the VAR was in the referee's ear saying, no, actually, that last penalty needs to be retaken. And then the ref just looked at David Marshall and went, nah, I'm not not doing that. It's fine. The goal can stand. Um, Ryan Christie, Carl, I quite enjoyed that kind of almost tear-laden interview, but he he clearly respected the broadcast so much that he, he managed to struggle his way through it. Oh, it was fantastic. I know you're a fan of good sporting comms as well. And the immediate moments after Scotland secure qualification were quite special it's a happy ending for Scotland for a change the time has come the time really has come a night for the players a night for the fans a night for all of Scotland it was amazing Uh, I'm a big fan of an Instagram page that simply just takes photographs of footballers with beer um, and there were some quite good ones of the Scottish National Team. There's a good photograph of Scott McTominay drinking a beer. But there was no John McGinn because he had to miss quite a few celebrations because he was picked for random drug testing. So <laughs> I, I quite enjoyed that as well. Just a photograph of John McGinn um, just uh, cheesing, going, sorry, I've missed it because I'm not the drugs test. John McGinn, who very much looks like someone I would play Call of Duty on Xbox every other Wednesday if he was not <laughs> playing football. Carl mentioned the commentators. That is one of the really excellent things about international breaks. And it it doesn't really, it kind of grates on me as an England fan when it's England. But I really like that commentators, for example, on a Scotland game, have license to say we and to cheer goals as if they were at the game. Whereas obviously club football people get is a very serious business and people get very seriously angry if a commentator has used a slightly louder voice to cheer one goal than another. So I really like that they, that they have that license to go, we've done it, we've done it, we've done it. It wasn't quite your, your Norway, you know, <laughs> losing the plot, but it, mm. it was really, really good. I enjoyed it. I see Ian Crocker as, as part of the furniture of, of Scottish football, quite frankly. I, I don't even know if he is Scottish. Uh, David matter. Proven is incredibly Scottish, so he <laughs> so there's no doubt there. But I, see, I mean, the two of them are, are part of the tapestry of Scottish football for me now, which, which is I, I thought was quite a universally held opinion. But um, as it turns out, um, Scottish football fans are undecided, to put it mildly, about that commentary duo. But um, it, it's nice to see that they're going to be uh, well and truly involved next summer. Well, at least I hope so. 
Uh, Scottish listeners will be really enjoying hearing these three English people uh, talk about how much <laughs> they, they enjoyed the uh, the Scotland win. So let's hear from, from Laura Bannon. This is on this Totally Scottish Football Show, which is out now. It was meant to be recorded on, on Friday morning, but for reasons that you can probably work out yourself, it, it was actually recorded on, on Friday afternoon. Here's what Laura had to say. All these times that we've left hand and crying, all these times I've, I've cried in public <laughs> at football stadiums, um, and been asked years and years on end by by friends, why do you still follow them? Why have you not given up by now? All these years, the only thing we've really had to celebrate is like two Lee Griffiths free kicks, which inevitably meant nothing in the end. This moment is for the fans that have, have been through all that, 22 years of that torture and that pain, that heartache. And it's for the ones that have really stuck by the team all this time, saying one day we knew it would be worth it and... It's worth it now. This is our moment. Yeah, beautifully said. Um, on Sunday, Scotland beaten 1-0 in the Nations League by Slovakia. I can't imagine they'll be too upset about that, especially as they remain top of their Nations League group B2 ahead of their final game, which is in Israel on Wednesday. Uh, commiserations to Northern Ireland, meanwhile, beaten at home by Slovakia in extra time in their Euro 2020 playoff. They were then beaten by Austria in the Nations League on Sunday night too. Did anybody watch this game? I watched the I watched the final knockings of it. Um, uh, once I realised that I think it was it, it finished after Scotland or, or Scotland's final whistle at least, and so I I had the impression that it was going to be good fun watching for the last few minutes, and it and it was actually quite um, entertaining sprawl in you know, watching sort of various Northern Ireland players sprawled on the turf because they'd left everything out there, and. Um, your immediate sense from that was that it it was the end of a mini era for for that squad, um, despite the fact they got a new manager. It, and it's it's a phenomenon that always hits hardest at international level, because you just get the sense that a, a whole bunch of players who might not physically be gone are kind of emotionally kind of spent with the cycles of international football, and history kind of suggests that they're in for a bit of a tough ride from now on because the, that fall from hitting your peak is so hard. Since Euro 2016, they've they've lost in the playoffs for the World Cup. They lost in the playoffs for now another Euros. That is the hallmark of a team right at their limit. So regardless of how many players suddenly announce their retirement um, and their kind of natural end for things, that's that's tough to to get back to. Yeah, I watched the whole 120 minutes of this game because I was bewitched at the prospect of seeing a football match with supporters in the stadium. Mm. But it was pretty terrible, particularly from a, a Northern Ireland perspective, two really bad goals that they conceded and, and, and their goal was an own goal. It's, it's a, a similar problem for them, really, Daniel. They just don't score enough, is the, is the long and short of it. No, they don't. And they, as Adam alludes to, there's not a, a deep pool of strikers. This is not down to necessarily unfulfilled potential or frustration. It's simply a, these are the players we've got. And in, a, in an attempt to be non-patronising, we'll squeeze everything out of them that we can. And they did that in 2016. And, you know, it is hard to, to go again with a, with a similar squad when, you know, you haven't got elite players you simply haven't got elite players um and in Ian Barraclough they've 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 kind of got a, a, an educated gamble on on the future as well it's incredibly hard Michael O'Neill did so much with that squad that it's very hard for for Ian to to in any way match up to that um so yeah they will hope to be able to in inverted commas go again but yeah as Adam says I do worry it's the end of a, a mini era 
So also on Thursday night, Dominic Szabalaj's last-minute winner for Hungary saw them pip Iceland uh, to a place at the finals. Hat tip to producer Charlie, he flagged him up as one to watch on Wednesday. And 37-year-old Goran Pandev took North Macedonia to a first major tournament. It was his goal uh, which won it in their playoff. 19 years after making his international debut Thursday's game against Georgia, his 114th appearance for his country. I, I can't think of anyone who who has played international football for that long and then finally found themselves in an international tournament. The best I could find was Gabor Kirali um, going to Euro 2016 with Hungary 18 years after he made his debut. But he's a goalkeeper and they don't count because they played till about their <laughs> 50. So it literally doesn't count. Um, so he, yeah, um, Pandev made his debut as international debut in June 2001. He was 17. Um that is that is an incredibly long time ago. This, this is the expertise I'm bringing to this podcast um, <laughs> chronology, and uh, yeah, it's it. I, I like this sort of thing. I like players turning up at an international tournament for the first time uh, at a very old age and just thinking, finally, I've arrived. It's nice. It's it's it's, it's good thing. Yeah, I'm sort of going to be worrying every so often about Goran Pandev's injury status between now and <laughs> next summer, though. Um, that that's one of the things that will happen. Maybe you just retire. Maybe he's yeah. just retired. I, yeah. I am quite old, aren't I? Nah, yeah, I yeah. No, I don't fancy it, actually. Um, <laughs> or the other thing that might happen to, to thwart him, maybe, Daniel, is this is this tournament actually taking place. Are you, are you thinking that it's still going to happen and that it's still going to happen in the proposed format of across all European cities, etc. and so on? Well, that is certainly UEFA's current intention. They believe that they can do it um across Europe with Wembley semi-finals and final as was touted there was a story in in the French media a couple of weeks ago that Russia was the the kind of backup option on the basis that they had they already had the infrastructure from 2018 and could very easily take it on um whether fans will be there is is the bigger question I think I, I'm certain that the tournament will happen um I've no, I've no doubt about that whatsoever. They will, if they can make international friendlies happen and the Nations League happen, then they're definitely going to make the European Championship happen. No doubt about that. But it's the fans' issue because, you know, without wanting to be too twee about things, if you are a Scotland, and we just heard from, you know, people who both in professional and fans who are who were brought to tears by this, if they then can't go, as good as watching your team play at home, surrounded by your mates, will be. It would be a lot better to be there. So actually, Carl, this this international break now, which has seemed so incredibly frivolous, might prove to be a useful testing ground. As Daniel says, it proves that multiple matches on in multiple countries can be staged, you know, at the same time or, or nearly at the same time. Yes, I put that can be in italics and in bold. Uh, if someone's doing a transcript of this podcast, it can be. Um, it is. A very precarious time for international football. And obviously, I understand why we're doing this. Makes the Seymour Skinner money taxes gesture. <laughs> um, but it does make me feel slightly uneasy, both in terms of, I mean, when you look at the argument FIFA Pro were making, I think in February this year, I was in Brussels and I was hearing Vincent Company talk uh, in his role at FIFA Pro saying player management and player load and player management has just gone outside the window and players can't keep doing 60 games a season. And I was really telling, you know, Vincent Company and now Anderlecht and he was, you know, during his Man City heyday, he was playing around about 50 to 60 games a season and he was saying it's not sustainable and that was in a traditional, air quotes, traditional European calendar and now to do this with, with five fewer weeks. What you're seeing is what you're seeing, you know, Ben Chilwell having to sit down after 
60 minutes going, no, my body's not doing this anymore. I was shocked when I was watching uh, the England-Belgium game and uh, the commentary mentioned that the Nations League would be happening in October. So the fact that England have been knocked out sort of gave me mild relief. Um, France, we'll still we'll still find friendlies to play. I, I yeah. really wouldn't worry about that, Carl. <laughs> You'd imagine so, but you, you think if you're um, take a player like Varane or, or Antoine Griezmann, right, playing for France, expecting to do a, a deep Champions League run, will probably expect to do a deep Euros run, and will be playing in a Nations League. They're playing non-stop football up until 2020 too. Um, there is that sort of hidden aspect to quite a few South American football players like Alexis Sanchez, Edison Cavani and Luis Suarez, how they are, you know, basically crambazzled or prematurely aged because they played all those Copper Americas back to back. And I think you're going to see that now for European footballers right now, where you're going to see players like, yeah, they're going to be 33, but they'll be a very old 33 because they're going to have to play so many games between now and 20, 2022. I think you you know that fatigue has become a particularly looming problem for elite level football when even the kind of the the footballers earn £100,000 a week how can they be tired brigade suddenly fall silent you don't hear from them anymore and they are a brigade by the way they have a uniform they do marches and drills and everything but um, this this feels like an issue that I have some sympathy with football generally about this. It feels like an issue that they were never going to be able to get ahead of. This is always going to be a case of see how it turns out situation because you can't you can't really bank on players' fatigue in the future. You just you just can't you can't calculate it. So it was always going to be a case of let's see how many fall to the turf and then see how many we've got left. And if there's enough left for a, a legal game of football, we can continue. Yeah, there's no tipping point, Daniel, is there? That's the thing. Whilst these injuries that are happening are sort of muscle strains and what have you, you're not going to get something, you, one would hope, massively serious happen to a player because of fatigue. And also, you're very unlikely to get to the Euros next season and have, say, England or North Macedonia have to take a team of under-17s because everybody else is injured. No, no, they're not. I mean, the the, the one thing people some people maybe overlook is, is the mental fatigue as well, in that there is clearly a huge physical drain on players but you know I in that the book I did speaking to Neville Southall he said you know we played 55 games a season it was fine but the difference is is that when we left the pitch we could go home and we could switch off and it wasn't a problem we didn't have that constant fear that everything mattered so much that not only did our performance on a Saturday matter but therefore how we performed in training really mattered as well because if we did anything wrong then there would be rumours that we weren't training properly and we were unprofessional it's that it's that constant churn of mental fatigue that must ebb away at players it really must especially the the younger ones who who must look at it now and think well hang on a minute I've got 15 years of this and it's a it's a brilliantly paid and it's a brilliant career but it it's also a, a pretty bright glare of a spotlight for that period of time. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. 
So from the Euros back to the Nations League, Sunday night Wales versus Ireland in Cardiff. Uh, Wales will be promoted to the top tier of the Nations League if they avoid defeat at home to Finland on Wednesday. This after they beat the Republic by a goal to nil. The sixth competitive meeting between the teams in less than four years, as is usually the case when they meet. There wasn't much in it. David Brooks heading in a second half winner. Ireland finishing with 10 men following the late dismissal of Jeff Hendrick. Here's our old pal Opta Joe tweeting, Republic of Ireland have failed to score in six consecutive matches for the first time in their history. In seven games under Stephen Kenny, they've received more red cards, two, than they have scored goals, one. Uh, I watched this game. I wish that I hadn't done, Carl. It can't be much fun supporting the Republic of Ireland at the moment. It feels like a lot of people want Stephen Kenny to do well, but there comes a point where you have to start looking at the results and you know the goals for column in particular. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's not so much treading water as just treading treacle. It's <laughs> it's very slow and plodding. Um, yeah, there, there's not much to cheer about in, in terms of that football. There, sorry. They've um they've they've scored three first half goals since November 2017, which is uh, quite a long time. And one of those was an own goal, and one of them was against Gibraltar. So, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Five, five victories since 2017, I read. Well, I saw errant tweets saying it was five victories, and two of those were against Gibraltar as well, which is that one of those sorts of, uh, what is the point? Uh, I, I, I understand. I understand. I mean, this is why we have the Nations League, where eventually you'll find your level, and that's why you have promotion and relegation. But Republic of Ireland just seem to be in this holding pattern where they're never going to be bad enough to get to a point where they're rebalancing and start winning some games again and things can be better but they're never going to be good enough that they can hope for anything more than other you know, other than a one-all draw with a former European superpower which is that sort of very annoying footballing purgatory that exists <laughs> I don't want to live in a world where Republic of Ireland win or lose games 4-3 that would, that would tear at the very fabric of my universe um, uh, there are a few things in life that I can rely on and Republic of Ireland either losing 1-0 or drawing 1-0 or 0-0 <laughs> is, is one of those things and I, I'm going to hold on to it for a dear life if I can do anything to impact that uh, that's what I'm going to do <laughs> Island fans, if you want to reminisce on happier times, have a listen to a special Totally episode which drops on Tuesday. It's all about the forthcoming documentary Finding Jack Charlton. I was joined by Dion Fanning and the film's executive producer Andy Townsend to reminisce about Big Jack's unforgettable time as national team coach. Wales are doing all right though, Daniel, aren't they? There's, there's some reasons for them to be uh, relatively optimistic about their short to medium term future. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly a slight question about the manager issue at the moment. We won't go into too much detail of that before the lawyer starts screaming in my ear. But um, that's to be sorted. But yeah, they do have a... I mean, what they have is a, a potential spine, if all are fit, of dependable, proven talent that, more importantly, loves playing for their country more than they love playing for their club. And that's actually pretty unusual in modern football. Um not least because they have already been to a, a tournament. We said about Northern Ireland, you know, the sort of carrot and stick thing. Wales have already did that. They they would be very lucky to get to another European or major tournament semi-final. And yet it feels like the love's still there to to push on, which um, probably says more than anything about just how fallow the years were prior to that. On Saturday, France beat Portugal by a goal to nil. World champs through to the Nations League finals next October. N'Golo Conte got the only goal of the game. Manchester United correspondent for the Athletic, Carl Anker. I note that he's now got 
two goals for France, albeit from 44 caps, and Anthony Martial has only got one in 25. Is he is he not played in the right position for France? Is he just out of form generally this season? What, what would you say about that? Anthony Martial's relationship with the French national team has is long and storied and very confusing in French. Um, he is... The fact that he sort of made his return to the French national team for these round of games and then France immediately lose to Finland was sort of, oh God, it's happening again. He's going to get dropped. Um, this was a pretty good game. It was, it was you know, well punched, well boxed. Judges scorecards had it well. Uh, I was I was quite intrigued by this. Uh, I was also quite intrigued, you know, speaking as the Manchester United correspondent for The Athletic, about Paul Pogba yet again saying some things that uh, will most likely be interpreted as him not enjoying his time at Manchester United. He said he, he viewed the French national team as a place of respite when he's in a particularly bad time in his career. Uh, and Didier Deschamps also commented about Pogba's usage at Manchester United and saying sort of this isn't working for him he's in a bad run of form this French team again baffles me if I've said some mildly disparaging things about Roberto Martinez and I'm still I know he's he's weird he's won a World Cup I'm still unconvinced by Didier Deschamps as an international manager I think he's got a squad or the ability to construct a squad that is 50% better than any other national team on the planet Earth and I think he probably gets that team to work 20% better than everyone else which is that very odd thing of he's probably do, he's doing a good job but and but he could probably do so much better if he started chasing some intangibles but international football is a law unto itself so off he goes adam on on pogba and his his comments presumably you'll have your football cliches bingo card out for oligan associates next press conference where he uh, he opines that perhaps pogba's remarks were lost in translation which always used to be a big thing around international breaks though actually i feel like in the last couple of years, maybe that's tailed off a bit. Probably blame social media for that. Yeah, it, it actually it's a, it does feel like a, a uniquely French thing. I feel like L'Equipe is the is the arena for the most football misquotation <laughs> in the history of the game. I, I don't know what's going on over there at L'Equipe. Maybe it's just sort of um, over-exuberant translations. I don't know what's going on. But um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's probably not... It's probably not what Solskjaer needs right now. And, and in fact, Pogba is... Um, an increasingly tiresome subject to talk about um, when he's not actually playing football. And it all adds up to, frankly, a pain in the ass for Solskjaer. Mm, quite. Uh, let's move on then to Switzerland against Spain. Lovely goal from Remo Fruller put Switzerland ahead only for Gerard Moreno to equalise late on. But it was all about Sergio Ramos, as usual. He became the most capped European male player ever with his 177th appearance for Spain, but saw two penalties saved by Jan Sommer. The second dinked Adamola Lookman style into Sommer's hands. Lovely bit of trolling from the Swiss keeper afterwards. I think he wanted to chip the second one, but it worked out well for me. Um, Carl, I will put it to you that that was actually worse than Lookman's penalty. Yes, I would agree. Graham Hunter, a friend of the podcast, and he's, he's written some great things for ESPN. He, he did a technical pass the ball wrote a fantastic article for ESPN a couple of years ago where he basically drilled down into Sergio Ramos's penalty technique. And uh, Ramos has a tell when he's going to do uh, Panenka. So basically when he's doing his run-up, he does a whole bunch of hand fashions and whatnot. But apparently when he does his back lift on his right foot, his, uh, his trailing leg will sort of 
hang in the air for half a second and that's when you know he's going to chip and that's when you should stay still uh, and it was one of those really fascinating articles I read went, oh this is great I wonder if a goalkeeper will f-. and a goalkeeper found it and <laughs> that's what happened um, yeah it's good that that happens sometimes Sergio Ramos is such I think of all of the footballers top level footballers especially defenders he is one that very much enjoys the theatricality and deception of defending and sco- and being a goal scoring centre back so I don't think he's going to be too bothered by the fact he's had two penalties not converted I think he, that just adds to his mystique and he's probably just going to get another bad tattoo and talk about that some more later on <laughs> I was fascinated by um, a, a stat I saw that he's um, he's taken 22 penalties for Real Madrid and only missed one, but he's taken 12 for Spain and missed four of them. Yes. Which which adds a layer of intrigue to the already intriguing concept of international level, uh, um, a concept I've never really understood, this, this idea that you have to step up to international level. I don't know what it is about international football that makes it harder to take penalties for Sergio Ramos, and I'm no clearer to understanding that now. I think Ramos is a player who... The basic fundamentals of defending, he's got, he's, you know, B, B plus. But in terms of like the dark arts or the intangibles and that weird sort of aura that, you know, you talk about players having winning mentalities or being clutch or having the dark arts, I think he's an A star person at that. Uh, and I think in, I think that works in, in club football. And, you know, he's the, you only have to look at Varane when, Varane, you know, Ramos isn't there. I think that can blow back on him when he's playing international football because he can get so pumped up on, essentially the smell of his own farts, <laughs> that his penalty taking gets a little, you know, his tells when he's taking penalties become that bit more obvious. And that's I, what you get. I mean this in the youngest way possible, but just just take penalties normally. Just take penalties <laughs> normally. You are um, correct. It, we, we, live in, we live in an era of football where marginal gains are everywhere. You know, tiniest edges are trying to be found everywhere you look. Just take the most statistically unsavable penalty you can. You're one of the best best footballer. He's a very good striker of a ball. Just take a really good penalty. That's all you need to do. And uh, if you want to muck about, then you will suffer the consequences. <laughs> it really is as simple as that. Just take a normal penalty. Yeah. I also, uh, what a credit to Switzerland, who, again, sort of, when you consider where Switzerland were in Euro 2008 and how they were sort of a host nation that were hoping to get out of a group and now they've become pretty much a legitimate B-grade European football team and they can hold you know they can hold Spain and whatnot it it shows well one it shows the fact that wealthy nations can get their national team sorted out in about a decade but uh, but two what having a plan can do for a national team in terms of coaching from root and branch reform so as a result of that and Germany's win against Ukraine it means a win for Spain against Germany on Tuesday we'll see them qualify for the finals but Germany only need a draw they had to come from behind Daniel to beat Ukraine by three goals to one. Frank Lampard may be not happy seeing Ben Chilwell go off, but he'll have been pleased to see Timo Werner continuing his recent hot streak in front of goal for the national team. Yeah, it's all coming up uh, rosy for that, that that Chelsea attack with with Werner and Havertz and obviously Hakim Ziyech pushing on. And, you know, although uh, Mason Mount is a, probably suffers from, well, he suffers from not being Jack Grealish in the eyes of the na- England's football nation at the moment. But, um, He's still playing pretty well for England, I think. So, yeah, it's all it's all coming up trumps for them. Germany are an odd side. I I cannot believe that Jörg Schimmler is still there because it feels like they're trying to go through this kind of um, ridding of the past while keeping the past front and centre of everything they do. It seems it almost seems a very English approach to think we can change everything without really changing anything. It's almost a kind of 
Yeah, it's a very odd situation. Um, Can you imagine him in a club job? I absolutely cannot no. imagine him taking charge of a club now. It, it would just it would just be really weird. He'd be like, oh, what do I have to do? I have to go in every day. That's really annoying. <laughs> I don't want to do that. He's also got that Brendan Rodgers Celtic thing where you don't you have you have absolutely no idea what sort of level of manager yes. he's going to go to yes. next because of what he's doing now. It's exactly. impossible. Uh, San Marino nil, Gibraltar nil in Group D on Saturday. San Marino still never won a competitive fixture, but as Optus Tommy points out, they have kept a clean sheet in their last two competitive games. They'd only kept two clean sheets in their first 150 such matches, conceding 669 goals. It was all a bit too much for defender Dante Rossi, who broke down in tears in his post-match interview. Um, Adam, you watched it. Were you close to mm. tears? There was only the one shot on goal in the game. <laughs> uh, I, I was close to tears on that day for many reasons, uh, which is why I was watching San Marino versus uh, Gibraltar. <laughs> I, I, I felt drawn to it. I felt drawn to it. I, I, felt, I felt a duty to watch it, not because I felt there was any particularly footballing intrigue to be found. I just thought, I, I, these are the sort of fixtures that the Nations League has gifted us and therefore we should be watching. Uh, but I should, you know, for context, I should also point out that this was a weekend where I watched comically bad 1993 martial arts film Shoot Fighter, Fight to the Death. And I also perused the entire 5,753 strong list of people in line for the British throne. Um, so that, so it's, yeah, San Marino Gibraltar is somewhere in the top three of the greatest things I watched this weekend. But it, it was, it was, it was a passable football game. It wasn't, it wasn't spectacularly bad football. It was just uh, two teams struggling to really do anything in the final third. So uh, yeah, and then San Marino decided to make it slightly interesting by having someone sent off. I would really like to see your YouTube search. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask it if everything was okay, Adam, given what you've been up to this weekend. But then I remember that last night I googled how many towns and cities in the UK are there called Clifton, and it turns out that there are twelve. Twelve places 12? called twelve. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? You see, it sounds like a boring thing to look up, but then I made exactly that noise, Carl. Don't, so. don't rule that out, Matt. It's been mutually exclusive. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, Malta 3, Andorra 1. The, the big question here, we were discussing this when we were talking about this week's show. Is this a derby? Can it be a derby if there's no land border? I say yes, because England Island would be my example. Adam, you've been doing some more research on this. Well, I mean, I mean, if you take geography out of the window for a second, you have to bear in mind that these two, there's no love lost here between Malta and Andorra. Of course, I mean... First of all, there's mixed emotions for Andorra midfielder Sergi Moreno, of course, who who spent a season with Maltese outfit Gazira United back in 2014-15. So yeah, that must have been must have been emotionally wrought for him the three-one defeat. Um, and of course, this was the this was arguably the biggest Andorra Maltese clash since they signed their historic income tax treaty back in September 2016. So I mean, so much water under this bridge. Um, how can you take your eyes off it? But is it, Daniel, a derby or a rivalry? Is there, yeah. is there a big differentiation between the two terms? It's not a derby. It's not a derby. It is, it, I, I'm, I mean, I'm still to be convinced it's a rivalry, but <laughs> it's definitely not a derby. But a derby doesn't need, an international derby doesn't need a land border. That is for sure. Denmark versus Sweden is a derby. Wales versus Scotland is a derby. You concur, Carl? Oh, yes, partly. Well, um, you can walk from, between Denmark and Sweden. Okay. Is, wasn't that a plot of a TV show? The Bridge. There you go. Yeah, I mean, that counts. That's that's linked. 
yeah, so long as you uh, pedestrians are allowed on that particular bridge, we'll have to look into that. Maybe I'll do that next mm. Saturday night. Uh, away from the international scene, in the last few weeks, our Monday podcasts have been recorded directly after a Sunday night pay-per-view Premier League game. But PPVPL is no more, at least in 2020. Premier League have scrapped the hugely unpopular model for November and December. As Carl tweeted, we've won credit to fans who donated to food banks rather than PPV games. Daniel, is this... Going away, is it going to come back at a slightly lower price point and, and then they'll go, there you go, we listened to you? Or is it just going to be January the 1st, 1499, mm. Burnley versus Wolves or whoever? I, I think it's going away for a while. The, the The astonishing thing about this is that the principle of it, of charging for games that weren't actually going to be on TV, uh, it, there's not really a problem with that. You know, that's fair enough. They weren't going to be on TV you can now watch them, but they're not part of your original package. The dismal PR to then charge that much for it at a time when people could afford less is so... so. I mean, football clubs are sometimes disorganised. People kind of overestimate how smooth things run behind the scenes and what you see is this kind of, ex- kind of plastic exterior. But to have got this so badly wrong is incredible. It really is. Because they could, if they'd have charged a fiver, people would have gone, that sounds about right, and I'll probably do it. And I would have probably done it for games that I wasn't otherwise going to watch. But to make it £15, and then to reduce it to 10 as if they were kind of find the biting point of how much they could take the mickey was such sensationally bad PR that I don't think it can come back for a bit. And, and uh, as Carl's tweet said, all power to those who protested, because English football fans are generally not very good at things like boycotts. Um, they're better at social media opinion voicing than, than boycott. So good on them. Adam, do you think they pitched it at, at 15 quid a, a game because it's £10 to watch a match on iFollow? So you could feasibly be watching a League 2 game for £10. So so in their minds, well, you pay at least a third more than that to watch Premier League content. Well, I mean, that was part of the rationale. I mean, again, you, you can see the logic behind that. But the, in addition to that, they said, well, you know, the production values of a Premier League game are so much higher than than, than I follow. You've got more than one camera angle. For, for people who fetishise camera angles, that must be incredibly good news. So I, I, I do get the logic behind that, you know, the difference between those two price points. But, um, I mean, it was, it was fairly clear cut. I mean, you take take the pandemic out of the equation. I just simply wouldn't want to spend £14.95 to watch a Premier League game of football that I, I originally wasn't entitled to watch. Then I think to myself, how much would I, would I pay to watch my own team? I'm thinking a ceiling of tenner. And then any other game, a fiver if I'm really bored or just have a you know, desperate need to watch it. Um, that's a very clear price structure. I expect them to listen to me and that's how it's probably going to go down. The other thing we should say about iFollow, Matt, is that there was a sense with, with football league clubs, maybe not so much in the championship, that, that the money actually did make a difference when fans weren't going to games. Framing that with the Premier League spending... X hundreds of millions in the summer, that's what's stuck in people's throats. Yeah, and it's not a major issue in the grand scheme of things, Carl, but the couple of games that I watched, Premier League games on pay-per-view, which I only did because I was coming on the podcast and and therefore needed to watch them, was that the production of it was so low rent and budget and Sky and BT looked utterly embarrassed to be doing it. For 15 quid, I wanted Carragher and Neville you know, strictly come dancing their way across the set to introduce the game to me. And, and you know, Martin Tyler giving it and it's live in his most enthusiastic voice. And, and instead we got we got the B team and, and no studio presentation. And it all just looked a bit sorry and underwhelming. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. I was astounded by how poor the production levels were. So I only watched one game on pay-per-view. And even then I sort of 
like smuggling myself into a pub and like sat in a corner to watch Manchester United versus Newcastle. And yeah, for £15, I wanted new camera angles. I wanted in-depth uh, analysis. I wanted XG and XGA and X men um, mentioned <laughs> as well. Uh, and I got, I got just the same box standard coverage that I'd normally get in Sky Sports. That I, you know, I often end up shouting at the television because they describe a highline wrong. Um, it, yeah, it was a disaster from start to finish. That, and was, I think- that was deliberate on the part of the broadcasters, we should say, because they weren't making any money out of it and they felt slightly frog-marched into it by Premier League clubs and they realised that they were going to get the bad PR, which is what's happened. Everyone's saying, oh, how Sky, you know, really... Well, yeah, but they it wasn't their call. <laughs> they already had yeah. their package. They weren't making any money out of it. So I think it was a bit of a... But they also couldn't say no because that would risk the clubs going, well, hang on a minute, we'll do it all ourselves. Is that your attitude? So they were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. I think this is a historic problem from... Uh, and I'm, I'm loath to compare uh, the Premier League to American sports because there are so many football fans listening to this that don't like the Americanization of sport. But English football has always had an issue with proper archiving uh, and proper rights footage and whatnot. Uh, and there is just so much good video and so much good club footage that just doesn't see the light of day because we're, as a country, we've not necessarily seen the point in it. Um, and yeah, I think pay-per-view has been a disaster. And I will imagine they will try and get it right again eventually because at the end of the day, Seymour Skinner money gesture. <laughs> but I'm really glad that, that this boycott from fans worked because not only was it a boycott, but also the idea, I think it was mentioned in Football 365, also the idea that they fans donate money to a food bank as well. So it was on one hand a boycott, but also going, I have this money, I could give you this money, but I'm going to give it to someone else. Someone else that very clearly needs it more than me. That put further egg on all the decision makers' faces. And I think, you know, once Mike Ashley's going, now nah, the price point's wrong, then you've <laughs> lost, truly. All right, coming up, brilliant goals in the WSL, overrated goals everywhere else, and we'll do our utmost to avoid lewd puns as Derby ditch their manager. But first, let's get some odds from Lee Price from Paddy Pat. Hello, listeners. When the powers that be revealed revolutionary new vaccine plans, it was hard not to get excited. Sadly, I'm not sure that the UEFA Nations League has cured the virus of international friendlies. But hey, maybe I'm just an anti-fixture. It's Iceland next for England and their thunderclap will be missing from next summer's Euros. Unless fans are allowed in, of course. In which case, every single nation there will probably rip it off. Now, doing a bit of a Bertolt Brecht here and breaking the fourth wall. Because I've recorded this on Sunday evening, just after England's defeat to Belgium, the odds for Wednesday's game haven't quite been finalised yet. You see, it takes a bit of science and wizardry to get the prices right. But rumour has it, England will be quite heavily odds on. It is a big one after all. Elsewhere, in a game that sounds like it might be worth watching, as long as it doesn't clash with I'm a celebrity, we can barely split Spain and Germany. And thankfully, I have some numbers to read out for you here. Luis Enrique's men are narrow favourites 7-5, with the visitors 17-10. Not to be sniffed at, unless, of course, you're yucking love and having a scratch. All the best. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. T's and C's apply. And when the fun stops, stop. WSL then all square in the two big derby games this weekend. In Manchester on Saturday, Casey Stoney's United came from two down to draw 2-2 with City. World Cup winner Tobin Heath 
with the pick of the goals. Meanwhile, on Sunday, an injury time own goal saw Chelsea pinch a point in their derby date with Arsenal. One all it finished there. Means Chelsea are 27 unbeaten in the league. And as pointed out by Tim Stillman on Twitter, Arsenal have drawn a WSL match for the first time since April 2018. Uh, the result of those results being that it's United who stay top of the table with the Gunners a point back. Much more of that and all the weekend's action on the offside rule WSL edition. But Carl, for anybody who didn't see that Toby Heath goal. Describe it. Oh, furious. Oh. Give it away by Bronx. Oh, what a goal. Some way for Manchester United to get back into this. And it's one of their World Cup winners, Tobin Heath, with a fantastic finish. It's a lot of fun. Tobin Heath sort of picks up a loose ball uh, and gets onto a favourite foot and then unleashes a shot that looks like it could break the net and then sort of erupts in a noise and, and beats the chest. And it's like, yeah, good. That's that's the sort of thing you want to see in football. Uh, Tobin Heath has really ingratiated herself well with the Manchester United women's team's fan base. Um, gave a, a series of quotes which made it pretty clear that she didn't really have an idea who Manchester City were when she was growing up. Uh, and as far as she was concerned, there was only one Manchester team. Uh, and I don't care if it's pandering. I, I was like, yes, this is good football activities and I will support this. Um, and, and again, like... Great credit to Manchester United's women's team and to Casey Stoney and all the work she's done since she's basically helped create it. Uh, bear in mind, this is their third season. Casey Stoney had like a truncated preseason in their first season to create a championship side. Did they, they won the championship? And and you know there are some very good um, viewpoints and very vocal viewpoints about how you know added injection from men's teams into the women's side of the game has created distorted amounts of the league. But Casey Stoney has been very, very open and honest about the team she's created and the intention. And uh, I, I mentioned this on, a pre, on, a, on another podcast about how she treats this with such a seriousness that makes Manchester United women's team a real entity in, in, in that WSL. I think we don't have a big three anymore. It's very much a big four. And a, a lot of that work is due to Casey Stoney, the team she's created and the players she's brought in. Yeah, it's been good to see somebody come in this season and, and shake up the established order. Um, now, it might well be the 16th of November when you're listening to this listener. On this day in football history in 2002, Arsenal beat Spurs 3-0 at Highbury. Thierry Henry scored the goal of the season going coast to coast. Henry, chance of a breakout. Will Tour to his right, Burkamp to his left. They'll do well to catch up with Thierry Henry, though. He's drifted away from Carr. Now, uh, producer Charlie, despite being a gooner, feels this has always been a bit overrated due to Henri technically not beating anyone. So let's have some most overrated goals ever. I'll kick us off with Gabriel Jesus against Liverpool last week and that touch that he absolutely did not mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> Carl, Ooh. what have you got? Um, it's Hatem Ben Arthur's goal for Newcastle. Similar just, to the Henri one. He's just running a straight line. And and similar to and on, to another degree, Son's goal last season. I, I, that was last season. It was last season uh, against Burnley. I un, yeah, running in a straight line the entire time during both goals. I'm going foul him, foul him, foul him. If if the goal can be stopped by someone collecting a yellow card, I'm not that intrigued. Okay, so you're applying that logic to to Ryan Giggs against Arsenal in 1998, presumably. Um, Daniel, what did you come up with? <laughs> Uh, yeah, there are two types to me. There's the you didn't really beat anyone, which the the controversial picks for that I think are George Weir versus Verona and Michael Owen against Argentina. <laughs> um, and they are controversial. 
Um, but my the one I think is most overrated is Ronaldinho versus Chelsea. Oh I yes, just, yes. I mean, everyone's sort of you just watch the replay and you. He has just sort of kicked the ball into the corner of the goal, which is quite, don't watch the replay. He does it, yeah, he does it in quite a weird, you know, not much backlift. Uses a player as a guide, maybe, but it is just a shot into the corner that the keeper doesn't die for. So that would be mine. Yeah, it, it's imbued with a little bit too much impudence for me. It, it's <laughs> it's good opportunism, but it, it mm. isn't a wonder wonder goal by any stretch of imagination. Um, yeah, uh, Daniel nearly stole my idea then, uh, but he didn't expand on it, so I'm going to use it anyway. This was yeah, George Weah of AC, AC Milan against Verona in 1996. I mean, to stick with the kind of coast to coast theme, I don't mind goals like Ben Arthur's and Son's, where they're, where while they're not slaloming round opponents, they are leaving them in their wake. George Weah's goal, apart from a very, very good first touch in his own penalty area, the rest of it is an absolute shambles. Absolute <laughs> shambles. There's, there's, it's ricochet central on, in the, on the halfway line, just a <laughs> random pirouette. The finish is scuffy. I don't like any of it. And it's gone down in, in history as his goal, like the goal of his that defines his career. And it's, it's just not worthy of the man. I, I don't like it. Those Verona defenders have effectively won in the Ballon d'Or, which is remarkable. <laughs> Oi, he he won that of <laughs> grace and guile and fantastic footballing ability. Can I can I give an honourable an honourable mention for Roberto Carlos's free kick against? Uh, it's a fluke. He didn't mean it against France as well. Please, yeah, oh, well, yeah, wind assist. Yeah. It was very windy. <clears throat> what? Uh, it's a good job that Jimbo's not here, by the way, because that that George Weah goal is one of his his favourite. I know it is. Yeah, <laughs> thank goodness for that. <laughs> also, when I said 1998 for Ryan Giggs, I meant 1999. Obviously, so don't at me. Uh, Derby have ditched manager Philip Koku with the club bottom of the championship. I'll just say that again. With the club bottom of the championship, the Rams have won just one of their 11 league matches this season. Wow, that's not very good. The last of which was a home defeat by Barnsley. Uh, Captain Wayne Rooney and coaches Shea Given, Liam Rossini and Justin Walker will oversee first team training before a permanent successor is appointed. Um, Daniel, on, on the Totally Football League show, Adrian Clark has for months and months been telling us that Wayne Rooney is the next Derby manager in waiting. Do you, do you think that that's the way it's going to go? I, I would have agreed with that until the takeover and the fact that they were Philip Cocker was always going to move aside because it just wasn't really working as quickly or as effectively as everyone wanted but nobody really thought he would leave with them bottom of the league I think Wayne Rooney is such a gamble with new rich owners and a team bottom of the league that they probably will uh, go for Eddie Howe and by the sound of it maybe end up with Roberto Di Matteo um, that's the talk but uh, no I don't think they'll go down the Rooney angle just yet Adam, you'd love to see it though, wouldn't you? Really yes. managing the team bottom of the championship. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's appealing on 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 many levels. Um, mainly because I really, really, really hope he's unveiled as player manager in the style of Brian Robson at Middlesbrough. Because <laughs> this this is the final chance for football to do this ever again. Because it's before it really eats itself. And I just I just want to see Wayne Rooney top half suit, bottom half football gear, and everyone just thoroughly enjoying it. But I mean. The, the cons. I mean, I'm I'm assured by all sorts of places that that Rooney has it in in the fibre of his being to be a football manager, and and I, and I get it. He's been around some high quality managers. He's lived and breathed football, and by all accounts, really, really has a passion for how the game goes. I just, it's, I just, it, it, <laughs> how can he be 35 years old? How can he be a manager? The whole thing is utterly absurd. How old are we all? The whole thing is just terrible. It really is. Uh, Carl, you're disgustingly young. Presumably, it wouldn't bother you as much. <laughs> I, I 
I am disgustingly young. I'm not going to mention how old I was when Ryan Giggs scored that goal you said was overrated, but I was very young, too too young to watch that live because my dad sent me to bed. Um, I want to see him in a tactical turtleneck. I'm really enjoying this no, very unusual you. stage of because we've we've entered a stage of Wayne Rooney revisionism now. We've we've had we've had Wayne Rooney was good. We've had Wayne Rooney needs to get better. We had the Wayne Rooney squandered his talent. Then we had the Wayne Rooney's in America stage. And now you're seeing the seeds of it on social media. You know, the little clips on the obvious great goals for Manchester United. Though the, wouldn't it be great if we had prime Rooney back? Uh, and we've definitely entered this stage of maybe English football was harsh to Wayne Rooney. And if Rooney comes back as a manager now, that pretty much just mothballs that. We kick it down the road for another 10 years because Wayne Rooney, the football manager, will curb all the, oh, actually, we were hard done by Wayne Rooney because the knives would be out and it would be generally quite weird. Yeah, let's not forget, Wayne Rooney also scored one of the most overrated goals of all time. That It was a shinner. Yeah, it was a shinner. Chester Derby. Right, that'll do it for this episode of the Totally Football Show. Many thanks to Carl, Adam and Daniel and to producer Charlie and mainly to you, listener Jimbo, back in situ from Thursday. Before then, do keep your eyes peeled for that special Totally dropping tomorrow. That's Tuesday. Until then, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.